Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. I'm presenting a verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John, and this is the 56th program in this series. I'm presently at the end of John chapter 10, the Gospel of John chapter 10, and this is the conversation that Jesus was having with the Jews in the temple during the Feast of Dedication, the festival of Hanukkah. And in this conversation, Jesus tells them that he is God manifested in the flesh. He tells them this by using words and phrases that they would specifically interpret as him saying that he is God manifested in the flesh. And so their response was to pick up stones with the intent of throwing rocks at him until he is dead. And so this is the conversation that Jesus is having with them. I'm going to begin in verse 29 when Jesus said, My Father, who has given them to me, referring to the sheep, the sheep of God, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Verse 31 says, Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself God. This was in response to verse 30 when Jesus said, I and my Father are one. This is an expression, it is a phrase that communicated clearly to the people there that Jesus was declaring himself to be God. Now, in English, we could interpret this in many different ways. But from a religious and cultural point of view of the Jews at this time in history, that was how it would be interpreted. It would be interpreted as Jesus declaring that he is God. And they referred to that as blasphemy. In verse 34, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? And I'll come back to this in just a moment. If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scriptures cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Now, in saying that he is the Son of God, In our language and in the common philosophy that we're accustomed to in this day and age, we would consider the Son of God to be a description of a different person. But at this time in history, when Jesus was speaking to the people, that was not the case because the people understood the prophecy of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, it says, For unto us... A child is born, unto us a son is given, 
and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is the same guy. This is the same person. A son is given. A child is born who is recognized as the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. Continuing into verse 7, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And so in verse 36, in John chapter 10, verse 36, when Jesus said, I am the Son of God, then this would have been understood in the context of Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, that he again is referring to himself as the everlasting Father, as the mighty God, this particular Son of God. Continuing into verse 37, If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. With this phrase, the Father is in me and I in him, it is another way of saying we're the same person. The same person. In verse 39, therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. So Jesus was very clear to them. He answered their question about being the Messiah by stating that they should just simply evaluate him according to his works. In addition to that, he added to the topic that he is God manifested in the flesh. He and the Father are one. He has made himself God. He is the Son of God that qualifies as the mighty God, the everlasting Father, according to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. And for him to say, the Father is in me and I in him, that is the same person. Now, at the end of the previous program, I explained that the definition of the Messiah was the point of argument here, that the people wanted a man to be their savior, to be their king, but that this was God himself. He would manifest as a person to be their king, to be their savior, but that it is him, it is he. He is not going to establish another person to be the savior of humanity. That's not what he's going to do. I know a lot of people would like to believe that, but God himself is our savior. He is our savior. He is the one who keeps us secure. He is the one who establishes us as eternal beings. He is the creator. He is the one who has created us as a new creation in Christ Jesus. He is the one who has resurrected us from the dead according to the gospel. But he himself has manifested in the flesh before the people in order to give them the opportunity to allow him to be their king. He gives them an opportunity. 
He gives them an invitation. I am your king. I will be your king. Recognize me as your king. It just so happens that I'm God manifested in the flesh. I personally came down here to be your king. And this is consistent with the Mosaic law. The Mosaic law had no provision for a king. When God defined the nation of Israel, he defined a priesthood, a high priest, and the Levitical tribe to be the priests for the nation. And they were the governmental infrastructure. But God was the recognized king over Israel. It was later, it was many generations after the Mosaic law was established that the people asked for a king. This is recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 8 as an example. 1 Samuel chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel and the name of his second Abiah. They were judges in Beersheba, but his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. The people rejected their God when they asked for a king. And now, at this time, when Jesus has come to minister to the people, they are looking for a Messiah, but their Messiah that they want to have, is a king, another king, who will establish the Davidic throne. But God is not going to let them have another king. He is the king. It was always to be that way. And this is an opportunity for God to be restored to his rightful place in Israel. You should expect that if Jesus is God and Jesus is the Messiah, that he is going to support the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Law, and he is not going to encourage the people to make a decision that is a rejection of God. And to have any other king besides God himself is a rejection of God. So God showed up. He showed up as a man. And said, okay, here I am as a man. Will you take me as the king now? And they said, no, because you say that you're God. Again, we don't want God. We want a man. We don't want to live by the law of Moses in the way that Jesus describes. We want to live according to the law of Moses, in the way that the Pharisees described, because they have a way that works. They have a way that's doable. 
to just live by the law of Moses, that's not doable. We can't do that, but we can do this. And they say that if we do this, then by default, we won't violate the law of Moses. So they replace the law and they replace their God. God is there personally. And what do they say to him? They say that you are committing blasphemy. Now, going back to verse 34, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, You are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, You are blaspheming? Now, there is a connection between verses 34, 35, and 36. He starts out saying, you are gods, and he says that he should not be condemned for engaging in blasphemy. Now, in the modern philosophical mindset that people tend to have during this day and age, this could be interpreted as to say that we're all gods, and so there's no one who can blaspheme because everyone qualifies. That is not what he is saying. But it's easy for people to make that assumption when we look at it from the modern philosophical point of view. This is not what he's doing, though. What he does is he quotes the Psalms. That's why he says, is it not written in your law? It is written. It is written in the Psalms. This is Psalm 82. And what Psalm 82 is about is it is about condemnation. That's what it is. It's about condemning the leadership in Israel and stating that they have not fulfilled their responsibility before the people and that they will die like men. They will die in the sense that they will not be a part of the kingdom of heaven. They will die like men. They will die like those who are a part of the earth and they will suffer the consequences of those who are a part of the earth. He is referring to people who will die like those who have not been born again by the Spirit of God, who have not been made into children of God. So when Jesus answers them in this way in verse 34, it's important to know the passage that he's quoting. In Psalm 82, beginning in verse 1, a psalm of Asaph, God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. Well, sure enough, God is there in the congregation, and he judges among those who are asserting themselves as if they are gods, people of responsibility and authority, people who are issuing judgment. In verse 2, How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Referring back to 1 Samuel chapter 8, the sons of Samuel were showing partiality to the wicked. They were not judging justly. So also these people are doing the same thing. They are showing partiality. They are not judging justly. Obviously, They are not like the true and living God. Psalm 82, verse 3. Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy 
Free them from the hand of the wicked. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are unstable. I said, you are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. Now, from the point of view of being a created being, you are a child of the Most High. But from the point of view of the gospel, you are not going to be recognized as a legitimate child of God until you are born again by the Holy Spirit. Verse 7, But you shall die like men and fall like one of the princes, which is what you would expect of someone who has not been born again according to the gospel and the new covenant. Verse 7, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all nations. And that's who Jesus is. Jesus is the righteous judge. He is the Most High. He is God. He is not like one of them. He is a true, legitimate judge. He is the living God. He's right there in front of them. He is not committing blasphemy by stating that he is God because it is the truth. That's why he was not committing blasphemy by declaring that he was God. He's not coming up with some explanation that softens the issue or makes it confusing. He's stating, no, no, I am not committing blasphemy because it is the truth. You say I am making myself God. I am. That's who I am. That's what he told them. And they rejected him. So what does he do? He leaves. In verse 39, therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first, and there he stayed. Then many came to him and said, John performed no sign, but all the things that John spoke about this man were true. And many believed in him there. This is a description of closure. This is a way of saying that God completed his task. And so he returns to the place where he began. And when he got there, he rested. And there were many people who believed in him when he was there. They could see that he began his ministry there, and they could see that his ministry was close to being over. And considering all the things that he had done, and all the things that he told them, all of the truth that he revealed, there were people who at this time reflected on all that had happened, and they made a decision that they would believe in him for who he really is. And so this was a point of closure for Jesus in conducting his ministry. This was God who came to his people. He set their forefathers free from slavery in order to establish a new nation. And over hundreds and hundreds of years, he worked with these people generation after generation. 
And this is the time of the end of the covenant that he established with them. And at this time, with this generation, and with the opportunities that he has right now, he uses this time period as a point of closure, closure with the old covenant. He is going to establish a new covenant, and the nation of Israel will be removed from the land again very soon. And instead of relating to people on the basis of the covenant that established the nation of Israel, he then relates to people on the basis of the new covenant, which is what he has been doing since then up until this day. And he will continue to reach out to the new generations that are coming after us to reach out to people with the truth so that some may believe the truth, be born again by the Spirit, become children of God, and be a part of the kingdom of heaven. But for this to occur, for this to take place, Jesus will have to die for the sins of the world. This is going to have to happen. There will have to be a solution to the sin problem between man and God. Jesus could have solved this problem if the people would have embraced him as the king, then the Romans would have captured him, they would have executed him, he would have resurrected from the dead, and then he would establish the kingdom there on earth and he would reign eternally as the resurrected king as God himself. But that's not the way it's going to work out because the people have rejected him. Now he's going to die in a different way. Now the people themselves are going to join in with the Romans. They are going to encourage the Romans to execute Jesus. So when Jesus resurrects from the dead, the religious leadership there in Israel will have an opportunity to repent and to believe in Jesus for who he is, but they won't do that. So there will be something else. And the something else is the time period when people will be born into this world and they will have an opportunity to embrace the new covenant in the same way that you have the opportunity today. And we will have an opportunity to grow to know our God in the midst of the sufferings that we experience in the world when he is not the authority in the world, as he would have been if he was established as the king there in Israel. So Jesus is going to resolve the sin issue, and to do it, he's going to have to have the leadership, the Jewish leadership, engage in a conspiracy so that Jesus will be captured by the Romans and be executed, so that he can accomplish what he came to accomplish, which is the salvation of humanity through the restoration of the Holy Spirit. And this is the way he is going to do it now that the religious leadership have clearly rejected him for who he is. This is the way that John described the history of the ministry of the Lord Jesus. And so John 
introduces this new phase in Jesus' ministry. He describes closure in Jesus' ministry at the end of chapter 10 when Jesus returned to the place where he was baptized by John the Baptist. In chapter 11, we have a new phase, and what John records are the events that were related to Jesus being arrested by the religious leadership, taken to the Romans, and then crucified. This begins in chapter 11 with the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. That's where he starts. John records the events surrounding the resurrection of Lazarus. Lazarus got sick, and then he died. Jesus resurrected him from the dead, and when the religious leaders discovered that Jesus resurrected someone from the dead, that was when they recognized that they had to do something. They had to act. They had to be decisive about Jesus, and they needed to take action to have him executed. Thank you for listening. This is the 56th program in the verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John. In this program, I completed John chapter 10, between verses 30 and 42. In these verses, Jesus was establishing closure to his ministry. He had a final conversation with the people in the temple, and they officially rejected him for who he was. He made it clear to them that he was God manifested in the flesh, that he was the Messiah in the sense that God himself was going to be their Messiah. They rejected him as the Messiah because they wanted a man to be their Messiah. And so this was the end of Jesus reaching out to the nation of Israel as a collective. And in John's record, he then reaches out to people on an individual basis. And I will continue into chapter 11 in the next program. You've been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 383-53, Colorado Springs, Colorado, 80937. Or use the donation link on our website, livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Thank you,